Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 9th, 2021. Joining me for today's podcast is my usual trio of fantastic tech journalists. That's Rob Pegarero, recently back from Europe. I'm sure I'll talk about that for a moment, who writes for Wirecutter, The Verge, and USA Today. Uh, John Quain, who writes for The New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. And the... the uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for an... <laughs> I'm looking for an... I can write an uh, adjective, but I can't come up with one. Uh, Stuart Walpin, who scribed for twice, U.S. Uh, News and Investopedia. Gentlemen, good afternoon. How are each of you? Very good. good. Excellent. Uh, Rob, you were just in Europe. Uh, tell us about that, how, you, how your trip was. Uh, Europe is a large continent on the other side of the Atlantic, but that's not important right now. Thank you. Uh, I was there for the Web Summit Conference, which I've been speaking at since 2016. Next year, I can only do it through the lens of this camera, but it did return to in-person uh, activities, and it was great. It was lovely to actually speak in front of a live human audience. Uh, they had a really good lineup. Um, I'm not sure Facebook would agree with that, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, and yes, it, it is exciting to travel, although, of course, there is this most anxious mood of an international trip these days. Right after you get the COVID test, you must have within three calendar days of your return to the U.S., you get the email, and then you wait to see, does it say negative, negative, negative? Otherwise, you don't get to go home. Fortunately, it said negative, and here I am back in the States. <laughs> So what was it like traveling on a six or seven hour flight? I mean, I've done, I've flown across the country a few times, you know, which is only five or six hours. And that's not exactly uh, a, uh, a, 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 a trip through paradise. <laughs> so how was it from an international standpoint? Did you notice any differences between a domestic flight and an international flight just from a, an experience standpoint? Uh, you know, it's, it's a longer time to have a mask on your face. And in, in this case, it was kind of a stack deck in my favor since for once my upgrade actually cleared both ways. So honestly, flights were okay. I really can't complain about that. That's great. That's great. Well, we're glad that you're back and we've got a lot of fun topics to talk about. So without any further ado, let me bring them up on the screen here. So let's see here. So first topic. Uh, Congress passes that big $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill with a significant broadband component last Friday. Um, I guess with that um, piece of legislation, Joe Biden now has moved above um, James Buchanan in terms of the most, you know, the, the, the least um, respected president in the country. I'm not, I just had to throw that out. You know, I, I you know, I mean, <laughs> it's not respect, actually respected is not a good word. The, 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 the uh, thing that's interesting to me about it, and it's really more of a political comment, is I don't know whether he's, it's, it's taken so long to get this piece of legislation through. And it does, it did have, of course, bipartisan support. I'm not sure he's going to get the political capital that, um, that, you know, most presidents would get when they pass something like this. But regardless, it, is a, it was a big deal. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the broadband component, which is what I want to talk about, I think is the most interesting thing. So I, I want to, you know, Stuart, get your reaction to it in terms of, do you think it's going to really move the needle from a broadband standpoint? Well, I, I actually attempted to read the entire section on broadband 
Um, it's a $65 billion piece, and it contains, as far as I can interpret, I don't know who writes these things, but they are almost impenetrable for <laughs> an actual human being to understand. So I don't world. know if I'm understanding what I read correctly. But given that, apparently it's going to be um, um, administered by the Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Communications and and information, which right now is filled by a woman by the name of Evelyn Romali, who seems to have the, the accreditation one would want for somebody in this position. Um, but it's only acting. I don't know if this is a Senate-confirmed um, position or not. And her, and her deputy, she doesn't have one. It's a vacant position at the moment. So she's got $65 million to administer and a billion. A billion, not million, a billion. I'm sorry, I keep doing that. Yes, a billion, sorry. Um, overarchingly, I mean, this could go either way. I mean, this could be akin to FDR's Rural Electrification Act from the New Deal, which the country, from the rural parts of the country went from 10% of people having electricity to 80% having electricity in less than 20 years. Um, and while the disparity between the digital haves and have not isn't quite that extreme, it could have a major impact if they get it right. And there were some very strange things in the bill. So for one thing, I noticed that there was a challenge clause that a grant that is applied for by an institution, by a city, by, by whomever, can be challenged by a host of people, including other broadcast service provider. And I didn't understand that. Does that mean that Spectrum can tell, you know, a school, no, we're not going to let you get a grant to get better? Why? I just didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. Um um, and there were a couple of other things. The definition of broadband was different in different places. Some defined it under the old 25 uh, um, download, uh, three upload, which is, as we've all discussed before, ridiculous in this day and age, or the much more reasonable 100 upload, 20 download, or 20, 100 download, 20, 20 upload, which is far more reasonable. And they listed these two speeds in different places for different circumstances. And I wasn't sure how it was being defined in terms of who was going to get what when. The third thing I found a little daunting was that a lot of the decisions on who gets what is going to be determined by the broadband data map, which everybody industry agrees is totally whack. And the time frame that they've given to put that map into place and the time frame for people to apply for the grants, which is about six months, also are don't match up. So you're not going to be able to get a grant until the map is fixed. And the map isn't supposed to be fixed. You'll give me a second here. I know I saw this someplace. Looking this oh, I don't remember. But it was not a, it was more like three years or so. right, was, exactly. the, the time frames did match up between determining the map and applying and getting the grants. Well, and, and to the, the point I made earlier is that I don't know whether with that kind of time frame, I think that the, the political payback in terms of the, the, the goodness that the administration would like to get out of it, I don't think the average person is really going to see anything right away. Now, there, a big portion of this, and, I, and this is what I want to kind of direct over to Rob, is a big portion of that, that $65 billion is on subsidies. You know, it's not on exact, you know, hey, when we think of infrastructure, we think of someone building a bridge, something physical, you know, in a, in a, in a, um, 
a digital superhighway sense, it could be building towers, 5G towers or things like that to enable something. But the, a lot of the spend is really on helping lower income families with, I think it's a $30 um, stipend, if I'm not mistaken. And the other thing that concerns me, and it goes directly to your point, Stuart, is that the, the, the legislation doesn't really go a long way to really raising the bar. We have this ridiculous 25-3 spec that, that's six years old. Most people believe that's incredibly archaic in, in terms of what the applications that people run today, work at home, multiple video streams in the home. You know, you, you can build a very easy case that that's insufficient. And for the life of me, I just can't understand why they didn't structure it in such a way, for, even if, the, if you're going to go with a subsidy play, you know, provide subsidies to people who get faster broadband speeds to, to, to provide some incentive to the carriers to, um, to make sure that they're uh, reaching out to every uh, part of the country to, to extend really good, good internet access and, you know, robust internet access. So, Rob, what's your thoughts on that part of the discussion? So there's a couple of... Uh, I guess, strands of policymaking that tie together. So about the broadband map and the challenge requirement, this is actually something I've seen multiple states do as a way. It's it's a sort of a, a good, I think, hack to get around the fact that the, the current broadband map the FCC publishes, which is based on self-reporting by internet providers that only goes down to the census block level. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you get that map better in a hurry? You tell existing providers, okay, we're not going to subsidize build out in these areas if you tell us exactly where you already have service. Mm-hmm. So that really short circuits the process of figuring out what really is underserved. The argument against it, of course, is that means a lot of people don't get competition, but I think we can agree you should take care of the underserved people first. Right. So I think that's good. Uh, I think turning the current emergency broadband benefit program into an ongoing one, cut from 50 bucks a month to 30 bucks, that's got a lot of potential. Um, the homework gap has been around for a while, to use a, fr- a favorite phrase of the uh, Biden's nominee for Federal Communications Chair, Jessica Rosenworcel. Now we're making to have work and have more of a permanent solution to it. Uh, one thing that has been mentioned that I do like a lot in this, back in 2016, the FCC was working on sort of nutrition labels for broadband, where an ISP would have to say, not just here's their downloads, here's their first year price, here's their uploads, here's their mm-hmm. data gap. Here's what right. you pay after the first year. Here's what you're going to pay for equipment, you know, all these other junk fees, things you would want to know and which so many broadband providers seem incapable of speaking clearly to their customers. I think that's good. Um, as far as the subsidies for building out connectivity, I like the fact that they're, they're not limited to incumbent providers, uh, municipal broadband operations, rural electric co-ops to tie it all the way back to the New Deal, they're eligible as well. The thing to watch out for is who actually gets these contracts. There are some bad precedents of, mm. I mean, look at the Pentagon. Anytime you have a large spigot of government cash about to be opened, some people are going to line up to try to get that who aren't actually going to be able to deliver. And that is going to be up to whoever is actually doing the grants, whether it's at the state level or the feds. Uh, and there, I'm not so worried about political appointees because all this is staff work. If the staff involved, I've got the time and the resources to award these grants intelligently and they don't have to give them to the lowest bidder. You know, this seems like a problem we know how to solve. John, your thoughts on this? I, I, I know the, the 1.2 trillion number I know is a number you're familiar with because that's how much you made last year. 
Right, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I might be the only person who's actually going through this process right now. Mm -hmm. So um, the challenge part of it, for example, is Elon Musk can come along and say, no, no, I can provide broadband service to the middle of Ohio for this price, et cetera. That's really the reason to have that in there is to maintain some pretense of competition, at least going forward. But I'm actually in the midst of it right now. So I've got the beta version of Starlink and I've got Comcast digging trenches and lines and trying to bring in broadband service to the middle of nowhere in Vermont. Um, and they're kind of racing by the way, Elon, it's November still in beta. Uh, he said, oh, we'll be out of beta by October at least. Yeah, um, you wish. Um, and meanwhile, Comcast is racing to bring those lines in under a grant. Um, you know, the government is paying for it, but we had to do an awful lot of work to get the government to pay for it. And then there's a time frame in which they're supposed to bring in broadband. Um, so they're kind of racing against each other right now. Will Starlink come out of beta in time or will Comcast hook me up in time? You know, we'll see. But it is its impact is huge in these areas. I mean, um, my neighbors are beyond the moon. They've been there 30 years plus without any real connectivity at that, all. That, to me, that is so shocking. That, yeah. that is shocking to me. You know, and, and, and frankly, I, I think that would impact yeah. a lot of people's decision. You know, the, a lot of those people probably have lived there for years and years and years. Right. But I, I know that when I'm looking at places, you know, I'm not planning on moving anytime soon. Uh, but if I if I was planning to move uh, somewhere across the country or some other place, I probably would look a lot clo very closely on what type of broadband capabilities there is in that area. And I can't imagine yep. living, moving consciously to an area that didn't have any internet access. I mean, it's I just, hard to figure out right now. That's well, that's, yeah. worse than that. There's no cell service there. There's no cellular service. So all you have is a landline. That is right. it. Which, you know, going back to Stuart and history, that was revolutionary, you know, at the time to bring rural phone lines. And, and so it's sort of about time that they brought internet access out to the rest of the country, which we kind of forget about because, you know, we tend to be more urban. Well, we could talk about this topic forever. I mean, the um, you know, for those of us are who have uh, kind of a love for history, I mean, this kind of you know, um, you know, harkens back to the uh, the National Highway Act with Eisenhower right. in the fifties, and I, I don't think many people understand how profound, boring as it was. Okay, we're going to fund an interstate highway system. The impact that had on the U.S. economy in terms of lowering the cost to transport goods across the country. I mean, it wasn't just about offering consumers lower prices, which ultimately that's what it, it translated to. But and of course, you know, driving across the country in a few days versus, you know, before there was a national highway system, it took, what, three weeks to drive across right. the country, some crazy number like that. But I, it, to me, this is a step in the right direction. I'd like to see more dollars spent on real infrastructure. You know, to, when I say inter infrastructure, hardware capability to, de to deliver, especially wireless capability to those parts of the country that just, it's too expensive to lay cable down, you know? So, so we'll see what happens there. Um, and, but I'm holding my breath a bit. So let's, let's hit the next topic. And that is, and, and you wanted to tee this up, um, <laughs> John Oliver's comments on the power grid. So let's talk a bit about that because the general Oliver obviously is a very, um, popular pundit, you know, kind of like a, uh, how would you describe John Oliver? Is he kind of a poor man's um, 
John Stewart? <laughs> uh, oh, I think he's a fly in the ointment. Just like it, it's just very interesting that the, some of the most informative people on politics and policy on television are comedians. Um, you know, between oh, John Oliver and Bill Maher and and um, and Trevor Noah uh, and Stephen Colbert, it's just very uh, it's just very interesting that a lot of people get their news from comics, which is. It's a little scary. scary. Back to the late Mort Saul, uh, who was very good at this sort of thing. Um, It it was a very, it's some, this is a topic that I've sort of been on for a little while. And the one thing that Oliver, John Oliver didn't mention uh, was um, one solution that he didn't mention was potentially burying the cables. Um, John and I live in Manhattan, and as we Manhattanites know, there are no overhead power lines in Manhattan. And that's because in very early days when they discovered that blizzards could knock down wires, both telegraph and power, the powers that be in the city decided to bury all power cables in the city. And this has been suggested on and off off after every hurricane and every other natural disaster, that the way to stop lines from coming down is to bury them. And it's a little disappointing that I'm not sure, I don't think that it's mentioned in the infrastructure bill or it is part of the power grid section of the infrastructure bill. The other thing is I think there's a business opportunity here. I mean, we know that people who have solar power have batteries in their houses to store power that the solar panels generate but isn't immediately used. And it seems to me that there's a business opportunity for the main power companies to sell battery cells to individual homeowners that would store batteries that, God forbid, just in case the power goes out, there's an emergency power source. So um, there are there could be solutions to what is an enormous problem. Uh, Oliver's main point that this is an enormously aging system and that it's not designed to handle the the transmission of the additional electricity we're going to need if we're going to move to a carbon-free uh, society. Rob, your thoughts on John Oliver as a comedian? That's well, <laughs> great. I've actually seen yeah, him. And John, and Rob, you get your news from? Do you get your news from uh, comedians? <laughs> Way back when at the uh, the Improv, just off Connecticut Avenue in D.C., he is great. So <laughs> whenever we can go to comedy clubs again, go see him. Uh, yeah, it was a good segment, and you know, some of what we're talking about here are technological problems in terms of like. PG&E in California, an aging infrastructure, which, oops, lit a large chunk of the state on fire a few years ago. Uh, not great. And I should mention my in-laws live in Sonoma County. So in an alternate universe, their house would have been burned down. So that's bad. Um, some of it, you know, we, we mentioned undergrounding. I checked, actually, there are some provisions in the infrastructure bill for undergrounding of wires. Oh, good. Uh, so that's good. But that's an expensive thing to do. I mean, it's very around, expensive. It's very expensive. Yeah. Yeah, we talked about it in my county, and it's something that is generally done. The easy way to underground wires on a block is to have somebody put up a 10-story building. Then, boom, gets done for you for free. But doing it wholesale is uh, pretty difficult. And th- there are issues, I guess, from what I've read. If you put wires in conduits, you know, they can flood. You can have other issues. I think, in general, having more uh, distributed power generation. You know, we know how to put solar cells on roofs. And certainly, I guess this is a debate going on in Puerto Rico right now, where the whole model of having one giant power plant that pollutes a lot and then have has lines that can come down in a hurricane is maybe not as good as having 
more distributed power generation that can sort of function as a microgrid the next time there is a storm that comes down, comes in and blows everything down. John, your thoughts? Yeah, I'm all for uh, bearing the lines. And I've, I've, having dealt with a power company on this issue too, they're just lazy and looking for the quickest solution. So uh, in one case, they just wanted to wipe out an entire neighborhood in the middle of nowhere, just because that was the straight shot to bring in high tension power lines through a neighborhood, even though they would condemn, you know, 20 houses or whatever. Um, in some places, though, people have successfully fought it. We fought it. They redirected the lines. Lake Champlain in Vermont, if anybody's looking to fight the power company, this is the way you do it. Um, a lot of people intervened. Guess what they did? They buried the power lines. Uh, and not only was that, it was expensive to be sure, but over what kind of time frame are you talking about? Expensive today, yes. But look at Connecticut, look at these states where they have restrung those power lines how many times a year? Yeah. Every storm that comes through knocks out the power. They have to send in crews from Louisiana to Connecticut. Uh, so I don't think in the end they're actually much more expensive. They probably save money, but it's got to, you know, you've got to have that long term view uh, to do that. But obviously the power grid is going to be essential too. And the more of it's above ground, the more vulnerable it is so there's that issue well I, I i can tell you just to close this one out as someone who had a piece of property in um in sunnyvale california that <laughs> probably the only investment i ever made where it was kind of a it was kind of a buy a property subdivided working with a, another partner to um get it repurposed as a, as a two-unit residential property if you knew what the city of sunnyvale directly across the street from Apple, by the way, across from the spaceship campus, what they put us through in terms of the requirements now, because the house that had been there had been there for 50 years. And of course, the, the, the um, zoning requirements have changed dramatically in this part of, the, uh, in part of California over the, over the last 50 years. And I mean, I can, can, I'm not going to even tell you what the number was in terms of, hey, here's what it's going to cost now to take what was formerly on, on poles, telephone poles, and underground it. It's a scary mm -hmm. number. And that was for, for a couple of houses. I can't imagine what it would be for a uh, city area. But there's no question. I think John is right. I mean, the only way you can rationalize this is you have to look at this, the cost, in terms of not just a few years, but you got to look at it in terms of decades to kind of rationalize it to avoid um, problems and avoid um, uh, disruptions. Okay, this is yours, uh, and I love the word, I love the use of the word uh, woeful. Uh, Rob. So apparently, you were you were underwhelmed. Is that fair, is that fair to say with the uh, with Facebook's website? Yeah, I mean, Facebook does not have the best. Um hand of cards to play here, but they, they did not make an effective case for themselves at Web Summit, which I should note, first of all, among the opening night speakers was Frances Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, who, you know, <laughs> she, is, she is a very effective communicator. She, she knows where the bodies are, took the pictures to prove it, uh, and made a good case that, and, and her, her, her speech was more in sorrow than anger, saying essentially, like, look, Facebook does really work for the original use case of being in touch with their family and friends. It's relying on groups that are too hard to moderate effectively and just optimizing for engagement all the time. And that's the point that many other people made, many other speakers at the conference, and especially in countries outside the US, where arguably we have the best version of Facebook you can get. You know, most of the resources in terms of content moderation and trust and safety 
go into the US. English is the first language of most people at Facebook, so they can actually do that job effectively. In Ethiopia and in India, not so much. And Facebook's response, they didn't phone it in, they streamed it in. They had <laughs> their, their public policy comms guy, Nick Clegg, he was supposed to fly to Web Summit and he didn't, which unclear why you would back out of that. I think Facebook can afford like a last minute international rebooking of a, of a flight. Uh, and so he was doing this interview from his house in California, what would have been like 4.45 a.m. Pacific time. And of course, you know, when is when is not a good time to pitch your vision of the metaverse when your own video stream keeps freezing and, and cutting out? <laughs> and <laughs> another Facebook guy who spoke, Chris Cox, who's been mm -hmm. a product guy for a long time. He's now, I guess, their chief product officer, gave a talk about the metaverse. And it was the same sort of thing where here's this guy in a, a really badly lit room. And sometimes the, the sound continues, but the video stops. Uh, and the other weird thing is, while this was going on between Clegg's talk Tuesday and Cox's, I think Thursday, Facebook announced they're doing away with their whole facial recognition database. Yes. They're needing a billion plus right. face prints. And Cox didn't mention that. You know, you want to say we're not optimizing for engagement. We're going to leave money on the table right there. Because, yeah, we well, all know you get well, that. Well, Rob, let me stop you. Didn't they backpedal? I, they announced that they announced hey, we're, getting, we're blowing up all this data that we have around facial recognition, but then they came back as well. It doesn't apply to Meta or Meta. What they it said is that they might do something like this in some future hardware future. where it could be done on device, but which, yes, there's a lot of ways they could backtrack. But if you first delete a billion plus face prints and give up on the engagement you get, I mean, if you get that Facebook prompt we think <clears> you've been tagged in a picture, of course you're going to do that. I mean, it's probably a good thing to have in a phishing email. Uh, so they didn't bring that up. And of course, the other speakers did not either. And so it was a lot of people saying Facebook is the problem. Not so much what to do about it, because nobody really knows. It's, it's hard to write some new law or policy that will both address this bizarre use case, this company on a scale that's never existed before in social media, and affect everyone else fairly in the same market. Well, that sounds to me like a, a Biden backtrack moment about the $450,000, you know, that's garbage. We're not going to pay it. And then all of a sudden they backtrack, you know, 20 minutes later after they decide to brief Biden on it. But I digress. I had to get that comment in there. Stuart, what, what, what's your thoughts on the whole Facebook uh, quagmire in terms of going, seeming, seemingly vacillating on the whole facial recognition thing? I think that's, that was kind of extraordinary. You know, that's well, I mean, just, you know, just today they announced that they're they're going to limit the amount of targeting you can do. So you you can't just obviously target someone uh, on things like politics, sexual orientation, gender, ethnicity, a bunch of things that. I mean, it sounds like you could still get there using things like lookalike audiences, but again, a big move that does suggest they're willing to leave some money on the table. Right. But of course, people don't trust them, so the issue is. Okay, what's the fine print? What's the where, how many asterisks are in this announcement? What do we got to check here, Stuart? Well, I mean, it just seems that every move they make and every move they don't make seems to invite more distrust in government <laughs> scrutiny. It, 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 it just looks as if it's one of those situations that they simply cannot do anything that will ameliorate any of of the dislike, the distrust, 
um, that they've engendered through their own action or inaction over the past few few years. Um, I'm, I can't say that I'm the last person to talk about this only because I've just gotten off of it. I, I just to, the thought of giving it even my little bit of fuel sort of infuriates me that I'm even a part of this. Um, <laughs> but I, the government's going to step in for better or for worse only because, like I said, everything they seem to do just seems to backfire on them. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, it's, it's almost like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And, you know, the, yeah. their messaging is bad and the content of their messaging is bad. So that's a really bad... Their actions are bad. That, I think, right. is the biggest <laughs> thing. That they're, It's sort of like trying to make up a 10-run deficit in the ninth inning. You've already done these bad things and, and if the other team, you know, you commit an error in the ninth inning, you've already given up 10 runs in the other eight innings. You know, so it's like it, it, they're, it's almost too little, too late. They've already committed the sins. They were arrogant enough to think that they were going to get away with it. And now the, the chickens have come home to roost, essentially. So, John, you know, Stuart brings up the 10-run uh, deficit issue because he's a Mets fan. And they found him, he, <laughs> he, he has found himself in that situation. Multiple, actually, they weren't that bad last year. Let's, let's be honest. But, John, what's your, what's your thought? I mean, you're, I'm, I, I'm, I know that you're not a, a humongous fan of Facebook. And I suspect a lot of this is not um, – is not changing that point of view for you. Yeah, and the, and the facial recognition issue was sort of a me too thing. You know, everybody else has already come along and said, you know what, we're probably not going to sell this database anymore, use this database, because of course <laughs> it's being shared like your genetic information, you know, and uh, whether you want it to be shared or not, it's being shared. Yeah. So, um, you know, people are just kind of waking up to the issues that are involved with that. Um, so it was sort of a little late to the party, maybe trying to think of something they could offer that might sound good to the public, you know, hey, we're not going to do this thing anymore. Well, we might. <laughs> maybe. But, but you know what's amazing to me, and then we'll, we'll move on to the next topic, is that you, you would think for a company that large, that they would have at least really, really good messaging from a PR standpoint. And to Stewart's point, it just seems they they they, they can't order lunch without it causing a controversy of, of some type. And I, and I, I just don't get that. As someone who's worked for some very large companies, and every company has its ups and downs in terms of either a product that maybe didn't work out as well as it should have, or the business is slowing down. You know, you got to have good communications and good messaging, and it just seems Facebook is completely. I'm, I don't know. I, I it, it just I'm, I'm flummoxed when I when I see some of their messaging, including and I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, this series of PSA commercials that they're doing, where they're literally asking, "Hey, government, federal government, please help us, help us with 230 because we can't figure this out. So you need to straighten us out." And I just I don't have any sympathy for them uh, well it's sort of like a light bulb joke you know how many how many pr people does it take to change uh the strategy at facebook you know just one but they've really really got to want to change you know so it really comes from the top yeah. and those as long as those people run that company you can get the best pr people you want it's not going to change the messaging that's very very true let us hit the next topic here and that is just love that name, Revel, oh, or Revile, <laughs> whatever you want, which way we pronounce it. But there were, you know, there was some um, media attention earlier today that they, uh, I think it was, that was an Interpol, was it? Wasn't it Europol? The uh, 
the agency in, in Europe that that investigates um, security breaches like this. They've announced that seven hackers that have been linked to, to a lot of ransomware activity got arrested, which is, I think, yeah, which is, which is a good sign. Uh, let me start with you, John, because you brought this up. I mean, do you think that this is just, you know, the, 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 uh, the you know, government agencies now are getting much more serious about going after the, uh, going after companies, uh, not companies, but, you know, uh, bad rogue actors like this, or do you, they, I mean, how do you, how do you attribute this newfound attention on this issue? Well, there's always been this mythology that, you know, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog sort of mythology, but actually we do, you know, you can trace anything. Right. Um, ultimately it's assigned through a router. It went through a node somewhere you had to, had to do it. Didn't matter how much spoofing you did, you can trace it. Yeah. When you get cooperation from other countries, that is the That's challenge. That's challenge, right. Right. So if I've hopped something through Thailand, you know, or I've hopped something through another router somewhere, that country may not let me follow that path line. But I think what this demonstrated was people are getting serious about it now. It's like, okay, now they have done some things that are very serious. It's going to cost something like $2 trillion this year in ransomware, I think is the last number I looked at for 2021. Um, that's a lot of money now. And maybe some of the other players are starting to wake up saying, you know, like the, in this case, it's in the Ukraine, right? The people are, are from the Ukraine. Um, he was caught in Poland. And I think they got six, you know, they got millions of dollars they grabbed as well. But the idea now is we'll get a little bit more cooperation from some of the other countries. So it could be a turning point. I don't, you know, I'm a little skeptical, but it, it could be a turning point in seeing some of these people traced and then prosecuted. Well, Rob, don't you think that, you know, one of the reasons why I think this is going to be Sorry, I'm the world's smallest violin for Revo right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rob, don't you think that a lot, the reason why this is getting a lot of attention is that I think governments, and not just the U.S. government, but, the, you know, the major Western powers, the democracies are coming together and figuring out, you know, we are, you know, the, we're just, you know, one, you know, double click away from someone taking down the grid, the, the power grid, or doing something really serious. I mean, ransomware is bad. No argument with that. That has a, a financial cost attached to it. But one day we're going to see a situation, and God forbid this happens, where a rogue force, you know, takes down the power grid for uh, for a few days. And that, you're talking about life and death. You know, this is not about dollars. This is talking about people surviving. I mean, can you ma imagine taking the power grid down during a, a cold storm in the Northeast? Well, we're capable of doing that ourselves, technically speaking. Right. <clears throat> I agree with that, but I, I don't think you'll see the United States do that proactively. I mean, they might do it in response to an, an attack from another country. And, and we've, I think we've already kind of messaged that we do have that capability and we would use that as like any other uh, element of warfare, but I don't think the United States would proactively do that. I, I like no, I meant in terms of just an underground wolf. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I mean my, my attitude on seeing these prosecutions and other things we've done, like apparently we managed to take out uh, a lot of Rebels online infrastructure, is you love to see it. Uh, this should have happened a while ago. Uh, I think it is a good thing we are getting going on making some examples of some of these criminal gangs, which is not the easiest thing to do since they've been operating out of Russia with a lot of tolerance of the government there. And we can't, right. you know, that, that is not an easy situation to do anything about. But in this case, 
we're making arrests, we're getting people, we're getting money. I like that. Uh, the other step that uh, the government took against hacking this week, I want to call out, is the Commerce Department put put NSO Group on the its entity list, which is the list of companies that you'd better not do business with because they got tired of that Israeli spyware company, their software being used to hack the phones of journalists, activists, dissidents, including yes. in the U.S. Right. And so they said, you know, we don't care what friends y'all have got in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, we're done with you. And that I think is another good step towards saying, look, there have to be some lines that are set and there's some things that we don't do online. You don't hack, you know, you, you don't get to call yourself a member of civilized society and sell tools to the likes of, you know, Hungary's autocrat, Viktor Orban, that are used to, for political oppression across international boundaries. You don't get to put ransomware into hospitals and in the supply chain and think you can get away with it. Yeah, the NSO, NSO is a good example too because of the governmental thing. Yep. They can't sell software to anybody until the Israeli government approves it. So that means all these surveillance things and dictators they've sold to yep. Netanyahu at the time, that government approved it. So there's a discussion that's got to go on between us and the Israeli government saying, you can't approve these kinds of deals. You know, this yeah. is, this is not, not kosher. Right. Stuart, your thoughts. Well, I'm, I'm fascinated by the criminal logistics of all of this. Um, <laughs> apparently, these two guys were, quote unquote, arrested. In fact, only one of them was arrested, and it was earlier in October. And apparently, what we're negotiating with the Poles right now to extradite, extradite the one guy. And the reason that the Poles have him is because, for some reason, he left Ukraine to go to Poland and he was arrested almost as soon as he crossed the border. And in my mind, I'm just thinking that somebody, you know, tricked him with, you've won the lottery, but you have to come to Poland to come to <laughs> your winning. Christopher Ray, the FBI director has not said why he came to Poland. So that part of it fascinates me. The fact that we don't have an extradition treaty with Ukraine fascinates me considering that Ukraine is the home to a great number of, of, of uh, computer uh, software antiviral software companies and apparently Bitdefender was one of the companies that provided the technology to help catch some of these guys and I'm not sure if they're based in Ukraine but a lot of them are based in Ukraine some in Romania and apparently the Romanian police arrested a lot of the people that Europol caught um, there are even some in St. Petersburg I think Kaspersky is located in St. Petersburg. So I just find it fascinating that a lot of the companies and a lot of very good companies that make very good antivirus software are located in the in the countries that are making it difficult to catch these guys. Well, and then all of a sudden, yeah, well, I visited, I visited Kaspersky uh, in Russia there in Moscow, and I visited oh, Bitdefender Moscow. and Bitdefender's in Romania. Um, and, and there is a, there is a reason for that. They get, you know, in Romania that had a huge, uh, university catering to the mathematics. So a lot of these people went through that same department and some of them went one way and some of them went the other way. <laughs> that's where a lot of it came from. Priest, um, and, and sometimes it's silly. I remember a case years ago in Romania, they had hacking was really coming from there even more than Russia. And they looked at their traffic and said, hmm, we have some high-speed data connections going out to this little village in the middle of nowhere. 
Why do we have all these data connections? And sure enough, it was, you know, a home to a little organization that was, you know, a cottage industry, so to speak, of hacking. So, uh, I mean, some of it is because of the same schools produced the same people. You know, uh, it's very interesting. And to Stuart's point, those companies are often battling Kaspersky in particular. We have nothing to do with the Russian government. Honest, we're a legitimate security company, but people still will not, you know, buy products for them or suspect them a lot. It's it's definitely an issue. Well, I think just to put a bow on this, I, 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 it pleases me that there's some positive activity in this area, and, <laughs> and hopefully it will continue. Because you know, I, I I'll tell you, my big concern, and I know you share all each of you share this concern, is that. At some point, we're really going to ransomware is, is going to we're going to yearn for the days of just a ransomware attack, where if they take down a part of the a grid, especially because it has military implications. I mean, the, the U.S. government has made it very clear that they would they would they would regard a cyber attack as an act of war. You know, well, and it's sort of uh, like the the old mutually assured destruction thing that kept us out of nuclear war and during the Cold War. You hit us, we'll hit you, and yes. nobody comes out alive. Right. You know, well, man. what if they hit the pipeline now? Gas is $3.35 a gallon, and they hit it now. It goes up to $6 a gallon. I mean, what would have happened? So they've already sort of tried some of this, and that's, I think, the danger you're talking about. You know, I, just because we're a bit over time here, you got to read the book one second later. I think it's called One Second Later. It was written about 15 years ago. It was about an, uh, it was about a EMP attack on the United States, which no ground damage. It was... In the book, the North Koreans detonate a couple of uh, weapons in the atmosphere and take right. out the entire grid. And it's a very well-written book because it goes into tremendous detail about what the effect is. And, and if you believe the book, the U.S. population went something like back, because the book is about 15 years old, it went from uh, 280 million to like 200 million in a year because of the supply chain issues, food shortages, um, people died because they just couldn't get um, uh, protected properly because they didn't have heat or air conditioning. And uh, it's a scary situation. Mm. That's all I will tell you. But we will talk about this again, guys. And listen, thank you for participating in today's uh, podcast, guys. Uh, for our viewing and listening audience, please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter. And until next time, have a great weekend. Mm -hmm.